Everybody wants love, but not just any kind of love, a love that really lasts, a love that's going to stick around. What does, what does our heart really crave? What is it that our soul longs for? And so I'm going to tell you some stories today about love. We're going to look again at 1 Thessalonians and see what the author there, Paul, has to say about love. And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. I'm going to define two worlds that you have the chance to live in. And I'm going to ask you, which world are you living in today? Well, something happened to me last Friday. I was eating breakfast with my friend Kevin McGee. You know him as our student minister director. Also was holding the fan in that video. Very, very talented fan holder that he is. Well, something happened to me that has happened many times over my past 11 years here at Spring Branch, but it's a, a term that we rarely talk about. It, it is a phenomenon, if you will, something that we call the Simone Factor. Well, the Simone Factor, based on its uh, the originator, its creator, Michael Simone, senior pastor of Spring Branch Community Church, the Simone Factor is something that you just don't know what's going to happen when the Simone Factor happens to you. The Simone Factor gets you free tickets to Major, La- Major League All-Star Games. It sends you around the city looking for the best hamburger. It always does something unexpected. And the Simone Factor happened to me and to Kevin on Friday. So we're sitting at breakfast and Kevin's phone rang. He looked at the phone, he saw Michael's number and he said, should I answer it? And I said, Kevin, always answer Michael's phone when he calls, always. And if I have the chance, I'll share that with the congregation just to see what they have to say about that. So anyhow, Kevin said he answered the phone and here's what I heard. All I heard was this, "Uh uh-huh, yes, okay. Okay, one o'clock, Washington Nationals game. Take Jacob, our former Danish intern, to a Washington Nationals game at one o'clock. It's nine o'clock. You know that it's 9 o'clock. Okay, you've got tickets. Okay, and, and, and then he just looked at his phone. I guess the Simone Factor had hung up on him. And it was like, figure it out. That's what the Simone Factor does. It's just like, figure it out. So it's always exciting. What are we going to do? So I'm like, Kevin, the Simone Factor just happened. What are you going to do? And he scratches his head and he said, well, Michael just said he's got two tickets to a Washington Nationals game. And we have to figure out how to get Jacob, our former uh, intern, who is here from Denmark. Uh, how are we going to, we got to get him to the game by one o'clock. Kevin, it's four hours from now. It takes four hours to get there. I know Michael also understood that. So we have to find somebody. Who can we find? You can't do it. I can't do it. Okay, so we started with college students. Who can take, uh, who can take Jacob, the Danish intern, former Danish intern, to the baseball game? So we called a couple of college students. They were all willing to punt on all their jobs. Sorry, mom and dad. You know, they are working very hard. But, uh, but as it turned out, they couldn't for one reason or another. So we went to the next layer, which was a high school student who was a senior in high school. And he was so willing to punt. And when we told him the story of what was happening, he said, yeah, I can move some things around. You know, <laughs> whatever that means. Uh, he can move some things around. He can make it happen. I am not passing up on the Simone factor. Everyone, when the call, when the call comes in from 572-4200, answer the call. Because you never know what's going to happen. To you. you never know what's going to happen. So anyhow, uh, uh, Owen was the student. Uh, Owen said, well, all right, I'm in. Then he called back two minutes later and he said, guys, I got a problem. I've got a problem. You see, at 2.30, I have to dress up as a giant golf ball and, uh, and I can't let mom down. I can't let mom down. And, and see, I'd seen the picture of this golf ball, this costume before, and it looked something like this. And I knew this this golf ball, I knew what he was going to have to do, and I looked at Kevin, and I said, Kevin, you know what you're going to have to do. (laughs) And with a tear in his eye, he said, Adam, I know I'm going to have to dress up as a golf ball 
so that my friend Jacob can go to the Nationals game. I'm going to have to do this. But give me a moment while I collect myself before I tell Owen that I will do this for him. And so he tells Owen, and the day kind of passes, I kind of forgot about it. But uh, so as it turns out, in order for these pictures to happen, this is my friend Jacob and Owen. In fact, Jacob is over here visiting from Denmark. Can we give him a hand? He's over. There he is. There he is. Sorry, sorry for your football loss. Uh, did they lose? They win? They won. they won. Oh, sorry. I have no idea. Apparently, uh, I thought they lost. But I'm glad that they won. I'm glad that you're here. We did that just for you. So in order for this to happen, in order for him to have all of these wonderful pictures, this had to happen. Kevin McGee, on shore drive, last Friday. Now, I tell you what, if you want to applaud for Kevin, that's okay. It was... It was hot. It was so hot. Now, I thought to myself, well, it's so hot. But you know what? I, found, I did some homework and, and found some things about Kevin that he's used to these kinds of costumes. You see, when he was younger, he dressed up as a, as a safety dog for HQ. And, and this is a picture of him right there. And then when he was in high school, his most proud moment was when he became the Princess Anne Cavalier Cavalier. This is him right here. And... Very exciting moment. In fact, he even won the Cavalier Medallion in high school, I think just for dressing up as the Cavalier. I'm not certain. But if Kevin were to write a book, if he were to write scripture, which he never would, I think this is what he would teach us today. He would say this, that no greater love is this than a man who would dress up as a golf ball so that his Danish friend could attend a major league baseball game. This is love. That's the kind of friend we want, isn't it? We want a friend that's willing to do that for not just uh, so we could go to a baseball game, but when we're in need. We're in need of love, and we talk about love all the time, don't we? It's because we want love. We sing about love. We watch movies about love. My very own Kindle, as I was uh, looking through it the other day, over half the titles have the word love uh, in them. I mean, and so, so I'm thinking about love. We're all thinking about love. You know who else is thinking about love? First graders. I was, I was at field day on Friday with my son Luke at Allenton Elementary. And we're running around having a great time. And there were a couple of parents who came up to me and said, Hey, we wanted to introduce ourselves to you. Uh, we're such and so's father, uh, a, a young little girl who, uh, who used to talk about Luke all the time. You, and I said, Well, he used to, huh? Oh, well, what happened? Well, um, apparently they were boyfriend and girlfriend. You know how can, uh, first graders are. You know, so much love there, so much love to share. But as it turns out, uh, we asked our daughter, why don't you talk about Luke as much anymore? And she said, well, one day Luke just decided uh, out of the blue to show me his lunch. And I thought, show me his lunch? What does that mean? Like bologna sandwich, what do you think? And it was wrong, she's a peanut butter and jelly girl, and it was bologna, no? So I asked Luke at the end of the day, I said, so Luke, uh, I met a couple of parents and they're a parent of this young little girl and apparently and he said, oh yeah, yeah, we used to be boyfriend and girlfriend, you know how it is in first grade. And, and so we used to be boyfriend and girlfriend and I said, well, what happened? He said, well, I'll tell you what happened. He said, she loved me one day and then the next day she pretended like she didn't want to talk to me and then the next day she loved me again. And she said, let's hang. And then the next day, she didn't want to talk to me. And so after a while, I just got really annoyed. And so I was in the lunchroom. I chewed up my sandwich, and I went, bah. <laughs> and I never had to worry about it again. <laughs> what a smart kid. You know, in one way or another, wouldn't it be easy if we could just, you know, show somebody our lunch, keep people at a distance? Some of our 
fellow employees and some of our family members at Thanksgiving. Show them, the, show them our lunch. But it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way, although maybe we'd like that it would. And so we have to find a way to, to draw close, because really that's what our hearts want, as much as we want to keep people at a distance. And that's easier, right? It, that way we don't have to worry about getting our hearts broken. We want to keep people at a distance, but yet there's this call within us, a draw towards community, a draw towards depth in relationship, even with God himself. Some of us have tried to say, Let's, let me just try and do whatever I can just to keep God at a distance. Because surely as soon as he sees my lunch, he's going to run from me. He knows exactly what's going on with my story. Well, there's a lot of this conversation happening in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Paul talks about a love that has to do something. It has to be one that we participate in and with. It has to constantly be on the move. And he says this over and over again to this wonderful little church in Thessalonica. Most scholars believe that 1 Thessalonians was the first book that Paul wrote. It was written less than... 20 years or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so some of Paul's themes about love were starting to develop. If you've been to a wedding recently, chances are you've heard another one of his themes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 about love, never failing, that it doesn't keep a record of wrongdoings, that it always hopes, always trusts, always perseveres. That was written after this book here, more than likely. And so Paul was just starting to get a sense of it. But Paul really sets up a challenge Through his letter, he really says this. He says, there's one world that you can live in. You can live in this world over here with a world defined by love with limits. Or you can live in this world over here, a world with love beyond reason. And so the question that we'll continue to ask ourselves as we move through our time this morning is which world are we living in? And so we pick up the story in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, if you were here last week, Michael talked about the first two chapters. And we got a sense of just how much Paul loves this church. I mean, just over and over again, he talks about how much you're doing the right things. You're getting it. You're getting the point. Everything that I've taught you, you're continuing to do that and more. And so I'm so proud of you. And he talks about not, I just, I can't even, I can't wait to see you to where we can celebrate together. And right before we pick up the scripture here this morning, uh, his, one of uh, Paul's uh, disciples, one of his, his protégés, Timothy, had brought back a, a report of just how great, again, the church of Thessalonica was doing. And so we pick up the story in chapter 3, uh, verses 11 through 13, and it says this. Paul writes, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. Increase and overflow. Uh, you're going to hear that theme come back over and over again throughout First and Second Thessalonians. Paul is saying, hey, what has started is good, but I want it to be even better. You know, it's one thing for, uh, f- you, know, for a, uh, you know, for a pot of boiling water to be contained, but when, it's, when it boils over, it gets onto the stove and it gets all over everywhere. And Paul is trying to say here, I want this, this same kind of imagery. When your love is so defined uh, and so intense, it's going to permeate your entire community. It's going to change your family. It's going to change uh, not just this small church, but it's going to spread beyond these walls. That's the kind of love that I want you to increase in. 
Well, the word love in one way or another is mentioned uh, 700 or more times. Uh, just lots and lots of times. I mean, naturally, I mean, loving God, loving others. Uh, the concept of love is talked about almost more than any other concept in the scriptures. But when we look at Paul's story here, he does something that was very unique and very defining, especially for this early church, especially for this, uh, this Greek context here. You see, the Greeks knew something about love, and they talked about love all the time, but there was one kind of love that they always wanted to avoid, and wouldn't you know, that's the very kind of love that Paul defines the entire letter of 1 Thessalonians by, in fact, his entire life and his relationship with God. So the scriptures, in the scriptures, in Paul's writings particularly, you find three different words, three different kinds of love. The first is a brotherly kind of love. It's where we get our word Philadelphia. You've probably heard that before. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a friendly love. It's, uh, you know, it's one that's, you know, like where a brother sticks closer, uh, you know, than you could imagine. And, and we're shoulder to shoulder in this. This is the kind of love that, that Greeks and the early church were familiar with. Then there's another kind of love that's called storge. And storge, you see it in, in the New Testament a few times, Paul uses it, but it's never by itself, it's always in combination with another word. And this is the kind of love that we have for our family. Storge is, is, a, uh, is a familial love. It's, a, it's, it's the kind of love that you would use this word when you're describing that great moment that you had with your kids or, or that, you're, that you had as a child growing up, that moment where everything just seemed right and uh, it was just a wonderful moment and your heart was just swelling with with pride and emotion. That was storge. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, uh, Paul writes, be devoted to one another in this kind of love. It's a, it was, and while it began with uh, a context of family member to family member, it began to permeate the entire church. So don't just love these people around you like they're friends, but love them like they're a part of your family. But Paul doesn't stop there. You see, he uses this third kind of love, this, this next word that, that the Greeks didn't really know what to do with. They weren't even sure with, what do we do with this in context? In fact, we struggle with this kind of love. The Greek word is agape. You've heard it before, chances are, if you've been around here for any period of time. And you've heard the expression for agape. It means unconditional love, love without strings attached, and that's true. But there's something significant about this love that separates it from all other loves, and that's this, that it requires participation. It requires participation, and it is entirely separate from feeling. It requires no feeling. It just is. It just does. That's what agape love is. And so the Apostle Paul begins to define this book and this passage here by saying there are all kinds of love, but this agape love, this, uh, this love without feeling, this love that requires participation is the kind of love that's going to change and transform the way you love in every direction, in every relationship that you have. In this book, Love Does, Bob Goff uh, talks about this concept here. In fact, if you're looking for a good summer read, this is a great one. It's, uh, it's really lighthearted and it's got 27 or so really self-contained chapters. Some of you are ordering it on Amazon even right now. But, but this is, a, I just love this book. Lots of fun stories. In fact, his life is the one that the parade was all about, the, that Derek talked about earlier. 
And in one of the chapters where he's, he's describing his love for his wife, who he calls Sweet Maria, who for an extended period of time, while he was trying to get her to notice him, he made a peanut butter jelly sandwich every day and put it on her windshield. Now, he never, never said, did he slap it on there? Did he put it in a bag? I don't know. But either way, that's commitment. That's dedication. And he talks about his love for her here in his book, Love Does. He writes this. The world can make you think that love can be picked up at a garage sale or enveloped in a Hallmark card. But the kind of love that God created and demonstrated is a costly one because it involves sacrifice and presence. It's a love that operates more like sign language than being spoken outright. It's found in the simple truth that continues to weave itself through the tapestry of every story. Love does. And it's that kind of love that we see here in verse 12 of chapter 3 where Paul says, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. Not just brotherly love, not just family love, but this love that, is, that requires participation, that isn't a feeling love. Regardless of what you do for me or to me, I'm still going to love you. That's the love that comes from God himself. That is Agape. So the story continues in chapter 4, where Paul kind of gives a, okay, now what are we supposed to do with this kind of love? How does it play itself out? And as a disclaimer, if you're just coming back to church, or maybe if you've just, you know, recently, or maybe you're here for the first time, this next list is going to be the kind of thing that you expect to hear in church. It's a list of things not to do. And I think that the mistake so many, so many, so many of us make in the, in the church is that when we see a list like this, we assume that that's an end unto itself, that that's what God wants, that, that he's going to be happy if we just complete the list and check the box. But whenever Paul gives a list, there's always a bigger reason. There's always a point to it. It's always about something else other than just completing the list. And here it's about protecting love, about guarding our hearts. And so he goes on. In, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 4. Finally, brothers, we have instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Well, that's odd. Then why bring it up? If we're living this way, then what's the point? Well, think about if you've ever played a sport or if you've, uh, I, you know, ever, ever done, you know, anything out of repetition. But when I think of, when I, I think of sports, that's the way my mind typically goes. And, you know, every, at the top of every season, regardless of what sport I played, the, the, a great coach would always start with the fundamentals. Would always start over. Even though I knew the fundamentals, the coach would always say, don't forget this because everything else is built upon these fundamentals. So I believe what Paul was saying, at least a tidbit here, was that what I'm about to teach you is going to blow your mind. We're going to go some places that you have never been with this concept of love. And so you've got to get the fundamentals right. And I've got to remind you, because one day, you're going to forget. Isn't that what we often do? We forget the fundamentals. And we get, we get sucked back into that world of love that's defined by limits instead of a world that's defined by love beyond reason. So he goes on here. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. There it is again. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And here's the list. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should be, avoid sexual immorality. Now what does it mean to be sanctified? It means to be set apart. 
It means to, that there's something special about you, that your life has been created with a unique purpose, and you need to treat your life like it matters. So don't just willy-nilly throw yourself into any relationship, because all of those things are going to affect the way others see you, but also your heart in the way you interpret my love for you. So be careful. Be careful. So avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And then he goes on to say, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins. And we have already told you and warned you, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live holy lives, to live a holy life. Very, very important stuff. And so this is, this is the story here. I mean, it continues to unfold that there are things that we have to be careful of. As much as we don't like to think about it, we like to think about grace and forgiveness and what, you know, in the prodigal son story of coming home and being embraced, there is some truth and reality, and we need that truth in our lives today. We've got to know what to, to do with it. So then he goes on in verse 9 to say, now about brotherly love, which again is that Philadelphia kind of love, Philadelphia freedom, We do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. Now, we could just blow past that, but I think there's something here that's very important for us to note. He starts talking about this brotherly kind of love, and this is important. It's good to have a brotherly friendship kind of love, but he says, I've taught you something different. In fact, the only thing really that I've done is I've led you to a God who has done something on the inside of you and has transformed you. So this concept of being God-taught, it's the first time, challenge me on this, it's the first time ever found in Greek history, in Greek literature. It was the first time. Paul creates a word. It's kind of like the first person who said, hey, Google this. You know, I mean, this is, this is God-taught. He, he, he combines to teach and God in one word and he says it's not because of scripture, it's not because of story, it's not because of the Old Testament, it's because of something that has happened on the inside of you and is starting to work itself out. And that kind of love is the agape kind of love that will transform the way you love and interact with all of those around you. So, so important. It's a holy shifting of priorities. It's something happens and it changes everything. So love is no longer about what you can give me or provide for me or do for me. It's about how can I serve you? How can I outdo you in love and honor and good deeds? And so we find ourselves back with this question of what world we live in because when it comes to, to love... Everybody lives in one of these two worlds. And the first world is this. It's a world defined by a love with limits. Here's what I know about this world because I've lived in it and sometimes live in it even day to day. Everybody living in this world wants love on their own terms as it serves me. I want that kind of love. I want love packaged in convenience. I, I want it when I need it. I, 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 don't, I want it when it serves me. I don't want it when it serves you. I just want love on my own terms. Everybody living in this world wants love to always feel like love. Isn't that the truth? I meet with lots of couples uh, talking about marriages and future, and, and one of the things that I hear consistently when marriages are really on the rocks is it just it's hard to love. It doesn't feel like it used to. But part of what God is challenging us in all of our relationships is that feeling is flawed. 
And his kind of love isn't based on feeling, although feelings are real and we should, we should listen to them and we should do something with them. But, but when it comes right down to it, if we want to love the way God has called us to love, we have to be willing to love and to participate even when it doesn't serve us, even when it doesn't feel like love. But we're here for another reason. We're here for this second world, aren't we? We're here for this, for some answers, because we get that other world all too well. We need something else, because our lives are demanding something else. So there is a second world that we can choose to live in. And that world is a world defined by a love beyond reason. A love beyond reason, that love that catches us off our feet, or catches us by surprise, knocks us off our feet, knocks the breath out of us at times, that causes us to, you know, to put peanut butter jelly sandwiches for, t- for month after month on a dashboard window just so I could get somebody's attention. But so much bigger, because it involves our relationship with the God of the universe. How desperately is he trying to get our attention? So let me give you some thoughts from from this world in our time left here together. Here's what I know about this second world. Everybody living in this world wants a love, wants a love that demands the best from them. You know, you see it three different times in chapter three and then on into chapter four where Paul is talking about an increasing to overflowing. He wants the best for them. I had a coach in fourth grade. Uh, best year I ever played in baseball, Coach Grilecki. And Coach Grilecki was the kind of guy that saw a very, very, very average baseball player, but saw something in me that no other coach had, and he was hard on me, he was tough on me, but he fueled that fire and that passion within me to win, and he asked more than I thought I could even give, but he made me a better person. But he would say it by, in, in, in such a way that he said, I know you've got it in you. I wouldn't ask you to do this if you couldn't do it. And that's the spirit that Paul is speaking here. Your love is good, but you could do, any, you could do even more. And I believe that our lives crave that kind of love. The kind of love that says, hey, you, you, even more could come, you could, you could influence even more people. You could change your life even that much more. God, you could yield your heart that much more to his spirit. Imagine the lives and the relationships that could be transformed if you were, if you were to do that. I also know this, that everybody living in this world wants a love that speaks the truth. We may not feel like we want a love that speaks the truth, but our hearts want that kind of love. We want someone to be honest with us. We want a love that will, that will really speak truth into our lives. And so when you see in chapter 4 where Paul says, listen, there are all kinds of things that you've got to avoid. And how you interact with people really matters. I'm going to speak truth into your life when I see you missing the mark because that's my responsibility. It's important that we invite people into our lives that can speak truth in love. Not just for their own purposes, not just because they think that, well, we need to be fixed, but because they love us with the love that only comes from God. We need that kind of love in our lives that speaks the truth. I also know this, that everybody living in this world wants a love that does 
We don't just want a love that is, a love that was. We want a love that's active and moving right now. Why? Because it's inspiring. And we know it when we see it, even when we can't define it, even when we can't put our finger on it. And Bob Goff says this in his book, because of our love for each other, because of our love for each other, I understand a little more how God has pursued me in creative and whimsical ways, ways that initially did not get my attention. Nevertheless, he wouldn't stop, and that's what love does. It pursues blindly, unflinchingly, and without end. And when you go after something you love, you'll do anything it takes to get it, even if it costs you everything. That's the kind of love that verse 9 talks about when it says you've got a God-taught kind of love inside of you that's breathing up from within and it's boiling over. It's only from, from this Spirit, this Holy Spirit, that your life can have meaning, can be changed, can experience this kind of love, a love that does. It's a love that inspires your kids to follow God. It's a love that demonstrates to your neighbors that your faith is bigger than an hour or so on Sunday morning. It's a love that does, and our hearts are craving it. And this world is, this second world is saying, have a love that's defined by that kind of love. And then finally, everybody living in this second world wants a love that will last forever. A love that never ends, a love that never goes away, a love that lasts forever. Well, this is my friend Andy. And Andy and I came along about the same time together in the early 70s. I'm not sure which one of us came first. But Andy was my buddy. He was my best friend, as a matter of fact, from from probably uh, you know, infancy on into, you know, well into high school. Just kidding. Until uh, I was, uh, you know, in preschool. If you saw me, you saw Andy. If I was playing in the mud, chances are Andy was with me. If I was eating lunch, Andy was with me. Everywhere I went, I was dragging Andy, just like this picture here. Andy was very important to, uh, to me. And, and uh, you know, I remember one time that Mom and I, uh, she decided that, well, Andy, Andy needed to take a bath <laughs> because he'd been in the mud and, you know, been around my nose far too long and it was just starting to get that kind of, you know, Andy crud all over him. And, and she said, we're going to have to put him in the washing machine. And mom tells the story that, uh, that I sat in front of that washing machine the entire time just sobbing, wondering where Andy was because I'd never seen inside the, the, the washing machine before. And, and I'd never, never been in there and I didn't know what kind of scary place it was. I was worried for my friend Andy. I hope he was going to be okay. Well, Andy was okay, sort of. But he came out of the washing machine with one less arm, maybe, with missing a feet, missing a foot or two and... But I didn't care. You know why? Because he was my Andy. He was my Andy. It didn't matter to me. And, you know, when I think back to all of the, the toys that I had growing up, Tonka toys and Star Wars and all kinds of things, some of those things I wish I had now to sell on eBay. I don't have any of them. But you know what I have? I have Andy. And of all the toys that Mom saved, this is the one toy that she saved. Do you know why I think that is? Not just because he's anything special, because he certainly doesn't have any value. To me, maybe he does. But because of how much I loved this little guy. And how much love was attached with it. And also I believe that when I was little, is to love me also meant 
he loved Andy. You know, John Ortberg talks about that there are two truths that define all humanity. All of us fall under these, these two truths, and the first truth is this, is that every single one of us is an Andy. We're a rag doll. We've got brokenness and past and, and, and there are things that are wrong with us and maybe at a distance we look all right. Oh, isn't it a cute little doll? But there's something missing. There's all kinds of brokenness and so we have a tendency to live and embrace that rag doll image, don't we? we? We think that, well, who could love this? Who could love us? Even though I love you is written on my heart by its creator, there's a, still a sense of maybe I just, this is it. This is my life. But here's this second truth, and this is the one that matters. Is that you may be a ragdoll. You may be a ragdoll, but guess what? You're God's ragdoll. And because of that, because of that reality, it changes everything. You want a love that will last forever? It only comes because of that reality. Because, you know, you may be broken and, and gross and there's all kinds of things wrong with you. But God says, so long ago I wrote I love you on your heart. That one day, one day you would get just how much I love you. And I don't care what anybody says about you. I'm carrying you everywhere. And I'm going to say, this is my ragdoll. This is my ragdoll. So you may be a ragdoll. But you're his. And listen to this. You may be in this place today and you are feeling absolutely miserably unlovely. And that may be very true. You may feel that way, but know this, that that does not mean that you are unloved. God loves you with a love that transcends understanding, a love beyond reason, a love that knocks you off your feet. And because of that love, when we say yes to that kind of love, people, it changes everything. It changes our perspective as we're God-taught from the inside out. This Holy Spirit breathes new life into us. And, and in an instant and also in a process, our lives change from one world to the next. But it's a choice. And so the question that you have to answer today or at some point in your life is what world are you living in? What world are you living in? What love is your world defined by today? Is it a love with limits? Is it a love that has boundaries, that has strings attached, or is it a love beyond reason? Aren't you tired of being somebody else's ragdoll? Aren't you tired of being tossed to and fro by some relationship to another because you just can't believe that somebody would ever write love on your heart? Well, he did. And he did it for you, and he did it for me, and he did it for all of us. Isn't it time to come home? And it's that kind of love, it's that kind of love that everybody wants. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you today for lessons on love from a ragdoll, from a first grader, from, from a loving mother, from 
a wife, from friends, from a church. God, from areas and places that I, I can't even comprehend. Thank you for not stopping, not settling, not giving up on me, God. Thank you for not giving up on all of us. I pray, God, today that, that we would know and we would sense and experience the reality of this agape, God-taught kind of love that transcends every relationship that we have. Would you breathe new life into our lives? And as a result of that, would our worlds be never the same? On a snow-white dove, God, you, you came down. And I pray today that we would experience that type of peace through your love through the sacrifice, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.